for me, it's my personal informed my professional and my professional became my cause, if you will, my mission of what I wanted to do in the world, which was to create workplaces that work for everyone. I'm Adam Connors from NetworkWise and your host of Who's Who in HR. Ask any successful CEO about the most important aspect of their company and they'll inevitably answer their people. And who is it that's responsible for their people? It's human resources. In fact, HR is the backbone of any elite organization. They attract, develop, and engage top talent, progress culture, secure, and manage important benefit programs, make sure you're appropriately paid, protect the best interest of each employee and the company, and so much more that quite frankly often gets taken for granted. On Who's Who in HR, I'll have in-depth discussions with well-known human resource leaders who offer insights into who they are, how they got there, and the areas they support. During our conversation, these leaders will reveal beneficial industry advice and innovative trends in the HR space that's contributing to keeping the world's most successful companies at the top of their game. My guest in this episode is Daisy Ojor Dominguez. She's the Chief People Officer at Vice Media. For Daisy, she's a huge proponent of diversity and has an extensive background in the diversity, equity, and inclusion space. She goes all in to ensure her organization is executing on the correct strategies to get the perfect balance of candidates from all walks of life. Her background is fascinating and there's no question that she perfectly fits the bill to implement a diverse workforce. Let's dive right in. Daisy Oje Dominguez, how are you? I'm doing great. I'm really excited to be here with you today. Uh, me too. So, all right. How did I do on pronouncing your name? Beautifully. <laughs> <laughs> I want to thank you. I appreciate the fact that you took a minute to record that introduction of your name. Do a lot of people have trouble with your name or am I the only ignorant person out there? I wouldn't call you ignorant, but I will say that I have seen the look of dread before, before so many times that I have come, you know, that I'm about to go to speak. If someone hasn't checked in with me before, and I always come kindly to their, <laughs> to their defense and sort of quietly pronounce it phonetically. OJ is French and Dominguez is in Spanish. And I appreciate that the Dominguez may be a little easier, but the OJ does not quite roll off the tongue in the way that you would when you read it. <laughs> well, I appreciate your patience and your help. <laughs> so thank you very much. <laughs> and and I love, you know, what, do you, what are your thoughts on what LinkedIn did for people? And, and before you answer that, I'll give you a little history on myself. I used to own an executive search firm. Mm -hmm. and there were people that used to work for me that would not reach out to certain people because they were just intimidated and they didn't understand how to pronounce their name. Wow. It's so wild that you say that because that is, I'm writing a book about diversity and inclusion. And the first two chapters are about recruiting and what are the best practices and norms and behaviors that you should be thinking about. And one of the sections speaks to bias in naming. And it's slightly associated with what you're saying, but it's actually the bias that comes from, we see names that we associate with intelligence, with access, with opportunity. And so those are the individuals that make it through our recruiting processes. And those names that we don't recognize, we associate with a less than, 
right? With a different range from a professionalism lens. But what you're saying is something altogether different and related. And is that it's our own fear of butchering it and messing it up that reduces our opportunity to actually find out someone who could be brilliant for the job, (laughs) someone who could be fantastic. And we're using not just our biases, but we're using our own fears to limit us from engaging with others. I hadn't heard about that, but I I think that's really powerful. I had maybe 10 people that worked for me. So I don't know. The data set is a little small. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) But but listen, candidly, there have been times myself where I've had to, like, I'll practice the name. And and Mm -hmm. then I'll just, the fact that so much time is even going into the name when now when you've got technology and things are so fast and when it's just so easy just to click next. So Oh, I was thrilled when LinkedIn put that feature in. And as a side note, when I married my husband, I took his name and he took mine. So we're both OJ Dominguez. And for the most part, whenever we go places, for some reason, people don't like hyphenated names and they'll always call me Miss Dominguez and him Mr. Dominguez, <laughs> which, which is something that we're constantly battling. But then when we were having our daughter, I remember one day you were coming up with names and I remember just out of nowhere telling my husband, I'm like, how are we going to teach her how to pronounce OJ? And he just looked at me. He's like, how did you learn how to pronounce Dominguez? <laughs> I was like, she's going to be okay. <laughs> um, so you know what? We all have our biases and we all have our lenses through which we look at names and our own sort of comfort with them. Yeah, that's great. So one more thing on names and then we'll move on. I don't know if you read Malcolm Gladwell uh, mm-hmm. did a whole thing on names. The tipping point? I want to say tipping point, but... Well, his last one, gosh, I'm also drawing a blank, but I'm going to... There's outliers, Yeah. there's tipping point, and then there's blink. Those are the ones that I'm familiar with. It's probably tipping point because Mm -hmm. I'm going to use tipping point because he wrote that the longest time ago. So I'm going to hope that it's my memory (laughs) that... So let's go there. (laughs) Okay, we can do it without... Or blink is the the power of thinking without thinking. That may have been the one where he talked about names and how we make connections without even thinking through it. I love all his stuff and his podcast yeah. <laughs> revisionist history is excellent. If you haven't had a chance to. Listen. Oh, I haven't. I'll add it to my list. <laughs> yeah. So, all right, let's talk about you enough about Malcolm. I'm excited <laughs> you're here. I've got so many questions and I'm excited to learn about your background, about you as a person, and then obviously talk about some of the things that you're really passionate about. So tell me, are you a lefty or a righty? I am a righty. Good stuff. Me too. Introvert, extrovert, or kind of somewhere in the middle, what they call like a a centrovert or an ambivert. I call myself an ambivert. I am equally comfortable in front of an audience as I am all by myself cuddled up in my bed. All right. Good stuff. Early bird or night owl? Neither. I am a middle of the day kind of person. (laughs) That's when you get my energy. I, I like to sleep in and I fall asleep early. Wow, all right. Well, I'm glad that we're doing this right now that I've got you at full capacity. Mm-hmm. And uh, what are you doing to stay sharp mentally? Oh, goodness. Reading and trying to, frankly, going back to the early bird and trying to sleep as much as possible. I found that my sleep pattern shifted significantly during COVID just because we weren't expected to be at places the same way we were before. And so I started going to sleep later and waking up later also. And I found that that just, that was messing with my brain waves. It just, it's not how I operate better. So I'm trying to stick to a better and healthier sleep schedule so that I can be sharper. What's really interesting. I actually just uh, read a book called Breath by James Nestor. And as a result of implementing 
some of the things that he's talked about. And by the way, best book I've ever read. I read it three times back to back. Mm. It's significantly enhanced my sleeping, which ah. is uh, yeah, really interesting. But uh, oh, great. Right, not about me. Back to you. <laughs> <laughs> We're both in conversation. Right. I, I'm writing notes. <laughs> Tell me something that most people just don't know about you. Oh, goodness. I, I feel like I'm so transparent with folks. I think most people don't, most people that interact with me see the high energy passion and sort of kind of on person all the time. And I think most people that don't know me don't know that I, I really crave silence and quiet. And I'm at my best when I'm, like I said, just at home. Mm, that ambiverting, yeah. You're funneling energy at both ends. That's great. What are your thoughts? on SHRM or any of the other like HR associations that are out there? You know, I think that there's something there for everyone. I personally have not used SHRM significantly over the course of my career, but I've also been a very non-traditional HR leader. I didn't come up the ranks through HR. And as much as I appreciated the HR specific content in SHRM, I've always found far more value in understanding sort of the McKinsey's of the world and the Deloitte's and how they look at business and the construct of it from a business lens and then thinking about what the human capital pieces that are aligned with it. So I think that they're valuable. I think that depending on where you are in career in your career, I think at the, in the, in the early stages of your career, certainly as much information as you can gather and make sense of and figure out the logic of. That's what I did when I transitioned into my first HR function. But I also think that there's just such a mix of intelligence out there to gather. And I like to pull from a lot of different sources. So what about the network perspective of just all the other people that are in the industry and kind of having that, whether it's the camaraderie or just some of the events that they're putting on? Do you see value in that? Yes, I think I see value in any networking opportunity. And by the same token, I think that there's value in the networks that I am now part of as the uh, chief people officer at Vice Media. I've only been in this traditional chief human resources officer role for about five or six months. So that network is somewhat new to me. My stronger network is in the diversity, equity, and inclusion space. But I also, I'm part of a lot of different networks of women networks of professionals from different fields and industries, which I find to be so deeply enriching because I'm learning things about being a venture capitalist and I'm learning things about working in industries that I haven't worked in the past. So I find those networks also really enriching. I also sit on boards, which is also another really great network of individuals that I probably wouldn't come across in my day-to-day, but who are in organizations and, you know, movement leaders and corporate leaders that allow me to kind of be in a place where we have things in common, but where I can also learn from. So I think you'll see a pattern from me where I'm always trying to find what is it that I don't know that I can learn and how do I build connections that way? That's great. I'll tell you something that you touched on that I, I don't know if that was co- if you were cognizant of it or, or it's just something that's second nature to you, but you mentioned networks. And I think that's really important because a lot of people think that they have a network and you don't own a network. You're part of many networks. Mm-hmm. So I really appreciate the fact that you brought that to my attention and whoever's listening's attention. So (laughs) kudos. So as the chief people officer, what would you say is your overarching role and responsibilities? Well, fundamentally, I'm here to oversee the employee experience of the organization. And that's 
from before you you join, from when you're a candidate, all the way to your last day. I have a global team that is responsible for looking at how do we ensure fairness in hiring and development and performance management processes. How do we ensure that our management practices are effective and inclusive through training? How do we ensure that our employees feel a sense of belonging in our culture through communications and also development and training? And how do we make sure that there's equity in our people processes and our business policies? Everything from our code of conduct policy to our client policies? How do we make sure that our employees feel that they're connected, that they're growing and that they're supported? Mm. So that's it. That's all you got. That's all I do. (laughs) (laughs) So it's really interesting given the diverse background that you have and and all the different networks that you are a part of. How has the algamation of all of that experience and contact, how has that helped you? And what kind of perspective has that given you to be successful in this kind of role? I think I'm at the perfect place at the perfect time. And it is because of the work that I've done for the last two decades. And it begins, frankly, with my personal upbringing, right? And so I grew up, I was born in New York City. I grew up in the Dominican Republic. I moved back to the U.S. when I was a teenager. I have studied at an international school when I lived in the Dominican Republic and also at a local small town high school in New Milford, New Jersey. So I have been part of the us. I have been part of the them. I have been an (laughs) in-betweener, if you will, throughout. I have struggled with the concepts of identity and fitting in that most young people do, but layered with a whole other set of identities around race and ethnicity and gender, nationality and immigrant status. And then I experience the same challenges and opportunities going into the workplace. And so for me, it's my personal informed my professional and my professional became my cause, if you will, my mission of what I wanted to do in the world, which was to create workplaces that work for everyone, which was to dismantle inequity in any way, shape or form that I saw it. And when you think about it, everyone has a relationship to work. Most people interact with people of all walks of life, if only in the workplace. And so having a a deeper understanding of what that looks like, feels like, and how do you operationalize that within different contexts has allowed me to both test things, to think about things, to struggle with things, to fail and to, you know, sort of get myself back up. And now I'm in this role where I'm able to bring all of those experiences and what I've seen work, what I haven't seen work, what I wish I would have been able to do in other roles. And I have an opportunity now to build that, right? To think about culture in an inclusive way, to think about policies that create access and opportunity instead of limiting it, to think about the way that we engage with each other and set a tone that is civil and collaborative and supportive. Those are the kinds of, at a high level, and I'm happy to share more examples, but that's where my thinking comes in and where I draw from sort of almost every decision that I make. Wow. So you're just not passionate about what you do at all. <laughs> just, you know, just ever so. <laughs> <laughs> so I, you remember how before we started, I said you should have a pen and paper handy just in mm-hmm. case. So I have that. I follow the same advice and I started writing when people say like these pearls of wisdom and I, I couldn't keep up with you. And I just threw my pen. I'm <laughs> oh, like, I'm done. Sorry. I'm to, yeah, that was, you were that loud. You were loaded with some really good quotes <laughs> and information. So <laughs> I thought I'd share that with you. You are, I mean, you're, 
arguably one of the pioneers in this space, this DE&I space. Was the passion, is it because of everything that you've been through? Is it the passion to help other people? Is there one thing that you could derive this from? Well, first I'll say that I'm, I appreciate it, but I'm certainly not the pioneer in this work. There were others before me that had started this work in, frankly, in back in the nineties. And, and I started in the, in the early two thousands and I owe a huge debt to everyone who started doing this work when nobody really cared or in the early stages when it was really about initially just, let's just, let's take care of affirmative action and let's build that out. And you had leaders like Ted Childs and you had leaders like Ross Hutnell at Intel that took those opportunities and said, oh, but I'm going to actually drive real change in my organization. So I want to give them credit. But yes, I started this work when I was at Moody's Investor Service. And I can't tell you that there was one thing that led me to do this work. It's the series of events and happenings that we kind of see taking place around us. And sometimes it's not right, but you don't feel that you're equipped to speak up or you've been beaten into submission so many times that you just feel like, well, that's just what I'm supposed to do. And so I need to survive. And in order to survive, I'll just be quiet and let things happen. And so many of us do that. And when we do that, we lose our voices. We lose our spirit. We lose a little part of who we are. And so to me, it was an amalgamation of those experiences, both personally, but also watching women and people of color who were talented, who were actually brilliant, far smarter than I, get quietly sidelined and marginalized over the course of their careers. And seeing some of them even leaving the company and going on to do really well somewhere else. And so that begs the question, well, what was it about this environment that didn't allow them to succeed? What was it about this place, these people, this culture? So it was those questions that led me to, to be the person that would go to the Black MBA conferences and the Asian MBA conferences and the Hispanic MBA conferences to recruit for talent. Because at that point, my thinking was, well, if we hire enough of them, then we can surely change the organization. I've since learned that certainly that's not the only way to do it and <laughs> not, the, not the solution. But that was my early thinking before I was even a DNI practitioner. And that was what sort of caught the eye of leaders at Moody's. And when they had to create a diversity and inclusion function, that's what they asked me to lead it because I seemed to be the one person who cared about all these things <laughs> who was doing this work when no one asked her to do it. So do you remember your first win? Like when you're that something that you did that moved the needle that you're like, okay, I've got, I've got, I got some positive reinforcement here that I'm going to build from. Oh, that's such a great question. The one big win that came a bit of the hardest to me, because it wasn't my idea, it was somebody else's who pushed me on it, was when we launched National Coming Out Day at Moody's. And the reason why that was a win was because I had been, again, following the best practices of folks before me and the companies and research that I had done over the course of months. I had started piloting employee resource groups and I piloted a multicultural resource group because we really didn't have the volume to have a Black, Asian, and, and Latino one at that point. And I piloted a, a women's resource group. And one day, one of the young members of the multicultural group turned to me and said, why aren't we launching an LGBT group? And back then we didn't even use Q. And I looked at him and I had to, it was a moment of vulnerability when I said, I was like, I don't think this place is ready for this. Mm. 
And he looked me right back and said, well, why do you think they're ready for everything else? <laughs> I was like, you've got to walk your talk if you say you're creating space for everyone. And he was a member of this community. And but he really challenged me on that. And so we got together and we said, well, if we're going to do this, we're going to need support all the way from the top. So that means our CEO is going to have to be in this. And so we put together a breakfast meeting. And we had different employees from the LGBTQ, LGBT, again, I, I keep on saying Q because it's secondhand to me, but back then we didn't even, we didn't use that word, but we brought members from the LGBT community and we had them each share a story with him. And each of them shared a story of when they had felt fear for their job, when they had felt fear for speaking just about the Monday water cooler conversations, everyone's talking about their weekend and where they felt inhibited from saying I was with my husband who happens to be the same sex or I was with my partner this weekend. And story after story, I could see our CEO being so deeply impacted by it. And by the time that it came to him, he just turned to all of us and said, what do you need from me? I was like, I will do whatever you want. I will tell the entire company, I don't care, just be. And that there are other moments like that, but that one in particular was special. And it was a huge lesson. I, and I share it because it was a lesson for me of overcoming my own fear and my own sense of what could and could not be done. And just a moment of a real breakthrough, which was really lovely. That's awesome. By the way, just be, I don't know if that's a, a saying or not, <laughs> but if not, like, I, I think you got to run with that and we'll give you credit. <laughs> so I mean, I don't know if that was your brainchild, but I know that you have a reputation of just coming up with good ideas. My wife has told me that <laughs> on a number of occasions. Where are most of your ideas coming from? And, and if you'd be so kind as to walk me through, like, how do you test your ideas? And then how do you get them executed? That's such a great question. You know, as I was mentioning earlier, they come from everywhere. And I think I am my most creative when I am putting divergent thoughts and ideas and concepts together. And so the fact that I have always been in the nonprofit space through board service, through community service, that's given me a lens into movements and social justice efforts that are very different from and that differ dramatically in terms of language and approach to the everyday vernacular that I have in corporate America, which can feel really stodgy and, and really boring, but where I learn process, right? And where I learn resourcing and where I learn how to finance and build out initiatives and processes. And then there's the creative side, which I would love to say I'm, I'm a creative. I married one. My husband is, is an artist and I have a lot of artists in my family. My, my dad and I were the only ones to did not inherit a creative lens other than the gift of talking. But through music, through the arts, through theater, I love anything that's content related. I could be watching a movie and I could come up with an idea of, oh, we should probably be approaching this diversity initiative this way. It comes, I'm constantly, I have a friend of mine who said, the movie, The Sixth Sense, he's like, you're like that kid. You see diversity and inclusion in everything. And I said, I do, because it is, because to me, diversity, equity, and inclusion, that's at our, our core as human beings. And so every lived experience that I have, I see something where it's working and where it isn't. And then I see sort of these, this connective tissue that comes to me in, in random moments, but I'm constantly writing. I have notebooks everywhere. And I'm constantly thinking, oh, maybe if we phrase it this way, it would be received differently. Or this movement that was led in the reproductive justice, right? And I sit on the board of Planned Parenthood. And I'm really proud of serving on that board. And I've learned so much about how to mobilize and how to engage 
individuals and doing good. And I've learned so much about persevering when you have just so much against you, but you are so clear on the important mission that you have. And then I come to the workplace and I'm I'm seeing my colleagues sort of complain because one of their projects got canceled. I'm like, oh goodness, let's think about this differently. <laughs> I was like, let's apply the principles of organizing. Let's apply the principles of energy driving. And so that's a little bit, I'm just giving you a, a muddled way of how my brain works. <laughs> mm. So let me ask you this. So you, you're watching the movie. You come up with an idea. You said you write things down. I'm assuming you'll write that down in the moment or is it something you'll remember and then you'll write it down? I have to write it down because I have a terrible memory. Uh, You're preaching to the choir. (laughs) Yes, I write and I write a lot. My notes app on my iPhone is just, it's full because that's where I write everything. But it's great because I can search for keywords. And so I will write, I'm, 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 I'm literally opening it right now to see when was the last thing. I just heard a quote today. I was on a panel And I I heard a quote, the power of the people is greater than the people in power. And I added that. I have an app that's all about quotes. And I added that to one of my quotes. And I said, I was like, I know I'm going to use that at some point. (laughs) So, you know, that's, that's what I do to remind myself. And then when I'm writing, when I'm preparing for a workshop where I'm putting together, I do a weekly letter for my, my team. I have a global team. And the way that I try to stay connected with them is that I send them a letter every Monday. It's my ritual. And it's a bit of the recap from the week before, but uh, in terms of our business and wins and gains and things that we're working on. But the first part is always reflections on where I am and, and what's going on with me personally, my daughter, my family, things like that. And I use that section often to collect things that I've learned over the week and where I say, I share that with my team. And that's become a little bit of my thread. And then I apply that to, here's how we're building out our strategy. Remember that thought I had a couple of weeks ago about how our employ- how we need to think about how our employees should not be reverting back to bad norms of behaving when we come back to the workplace. Here's how we're going to do that. That's how I thread the needle. That's great. So you write it down, you've got it there. And then what about the the testing part? Is is that your sounding board as your team? So you kind of throw it out there, you see if you get any traction and and assuming that you do, what's the, what does the execution look like? So the, the testing and iterating is, can go many different ways. I'll test with my team. I'll test with friends and colleagues that either are in the same field and doing the same work, or I like to test with people who have never done this. And sometimes I'll just, I'll send a proposal to a friend of mine who is just in finance or who is an entrepreneur. And I'll say, I'm about to pitch this. Does this make sense? If you read this, would you want to do it? (laughs) When does that look like? What, What else can I be thinking? And I always ask the question, what else am I not thinking about that I should be? And that always both informs my thinking and 99% of the time additive to what I'm working on. So for me, the testing is also about adding and refining. And I do that depending on the different groups and and frankly, the scope of what I'm doing. I do that with my writing a lot. Before I publish anything, I send it to a few different folks. My husband's always one of the people who reviews everything. And again, it's just, what are the lenses that I'm not applying to this because I'm so deep in this that I'm pretty sure that there's so much that I'm not seeing. And I encourage my teams always to do that. Everything that we don't launch anything before it's gone through a few betas internally within our team and also externally so that it has a different set of perspectives. And then the execution piece, it depends, right? So the execution piece, typically for anything that I do in the workplace, it's there's a lot of different dependencies. So I've got to make sure that 
our business leaders are aligned and connected. I've got to make sure that my other shared services partners are aligned. I have a legal team that have to make sure that reviews everything from a risk perspective. I have a comms team that have to make sure that reviews everything, not just in terms of how we position things, but how we may have to defend something down the line because of the role that we have. And so it's constantly thinking about all of the stakeholders and at the different stages that they need to be brought in for decisioning and for action. That's a lot of moving parts. It is. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> I don't always get it right, but I keep on trying. Nice. I like that. Back to the DNI for a minute. How is working from home this like new virtual? What has it done for DEI for the good? And what's set it back, if at all? Oh, goodness. Well, I'll start with the good. And it's that the world is paying attention in a way that it's never before. And so you've got this global attention to this work. You also have a workforce that is the most diverse demographically than it's ever been. You have a a generation that is entering the workforce that does not have the same baggage that many of us had. And so their whole reason for living is to question things and to push things and, and to seek justice and impact sort of almost immediately. And so you've got these confluence of events and experiences that are happening that give me a lot of hope for the change that we need to have. I do also, and I just wrote an article about that yesterday, I do also hear, and I have been hearing a lot more from new DEI practitioners. So in the last couple of months, everyone has created diversity and inclusion roles, right? Everyone all of a sudden realizes that this is important. So we have to hire someone to do it. But in many cases, you're hiring folks that have not had the long years of experience in this work. And so they're now a month to even three months into their jobs, now starting to feel discouragement of, oh, wait a second, they hired me to do this, but my leaders are reverting back to the same norms and practices that they've been saying they're against. And I don't have the power and the influence to change things. And so in the article that I wrote yesterday, I reminded folks, I was like, here's the four things that I tell people whenever anyone's doing this work, here's the four things that you should think about. One, you need to be very clear on what you're trying to solve for. Because when people say diversity, when people say inclusion, that means a lot of things to a lot of different people. And so you've got to get clear on what that means. The second thing is that you have to be clear on what role you're going to play. Not every diversity, equity, and inclusion practitioner or leader is the same. Not every leader in the organization is the same. We all have, some of us are champions, some of us are advocates, some of us are builders, some of us just execute, some of us are a combination of all of that, some of us coach. And so it's getting clear on what's the role that I'm going to play to drive the change that I have already defined as what I'm trying to solve for. And then after you figure that out, then you have to take action. Right. And that's, you know, your question earlier on how do you execute? Then you have to execute because the challenge with a lot of this work that we've been talking about is that you can't build a strong culture without action. A strong culture is action driven. It's not just full of good intentions. And we've been full of good intentions for a really long time. And so this time requires us to move beyond that, to act, and then to make sure that we are building enough reserves to push back whenever we get resistance because we're going to get resistance. And that I think is where we are right now in the DNI space, if you will, of where there's such tremendous opportunity. It's complex. You've got the added layer of your teams operating virtual, but you need to really be intentional about what you're doing and how you're going to do it. Yeah, that was a lot. And what's the biggest challenge? 
goodness, um, that that could be an entire new hour talk. I, I mean, I, to me, the biggest challenge is lack of accountability. In from, from this who? accountability from from leaders in particular, but it's from everyone. And and why I say that is that what you're seeing differently now, which has given me hope, is that you're starting to see people recognize, oh. Like, I've got to do a lot of work. As a white person, I've got to do the work. I can't expect you to do the work. As a leader, I've got to do the work. I can't expect my teams to do the work. As a peer, I've got to do the work, even if you and I are not in positions of power and privilege in the organization. But if the way that I walk the hallways is made a lot easier because of my gender or my race or my ability, then I've got to do the work so that you can have access and opportunity that's equal to mine. And so that I think is what's different now that I haven't seen before. And that I think is what also is giving me hope, but it's what makes it more challenging because people still for a long time have operated under, you know, because you've been so isolated from this hasn't, it's always been something that happens to somebody else, right? It's not something that happens to you for the most part. And now we're all in this, we're all in this together type of, place and folks are going like, wait, wait, no, like this is you. Like this is not somebody else's problem to solve. And I think that once people acknowledge that level of accountability and that willingness to do the work, to really reflect on your role, whether you've been complicit or not. And the fact of the matter is that all of us are complicit in one way or another, including myself, and just perpetuating behaviors and practices that are diminishing to one group or another. And so it's acknowledging that and then saying, okay, then what am I going to do differently? And I think that's the root cause we can say is racism. The root cause we can say is misogyny. We can say all of that. But at the end of the day, we've known that. It's about taking accountability for what role you're going to play and changing it. That's powerful. And and you just reminded me, I think you'll appreciate this as a person who loves quotes. There was another mm-hmm. gentleman who was on my show. His name is um, Bill O'Haran, and, and he's a really dynamic individual. And actually, he's got a book coming out. He had a quote. And essentially, I'll tell you what the quote is, but the backbone behind it is essentially accountability. And so so his quote was, Adam, a relationship, he said, is a it's a shared experience. And you can only make up 50% of the relationship. So because of that, it's that much more important that you carry 100% of your 50%. I think that's beautiful. We don't acknowledge that enough. We step back. We step back because it's uncomfortable. We step back because it's unknown. But we have to embrace the uncomfortable if we're ever going to get to a place of comfort for everyone. Yeah, I'm going to throw another quote at you and I want to get your perspective on it. Ready? Yeah. Change is hard at first, messy in the middle, and gorgeous at the end. (laughs) I love that. I love that. Yes. People don't, and I just heard this from a colleague recently. He's an executive coach. It's like people don't fear change. They fear loss. Mm-hmm. That I think is, and so this whole messiness, this what's beautiful out there is that because we fear loss, we reject change. But then when we learn, you know, and we go through the messy part of like, okay, this is not full loss. Then I think you get to that beautiful part. And I think that, but, but we reject even getting to the messy part because we're so afraid of loss. It's so true. It is so true. What's the best advice someone ever gave you? Oh, goodness. That's a great one. There's so many. The feedback that I've always received from, from my family was to, to work really hard. And, and that always feels really kind of simplistic, but I'm so glad that they gave me that advice. 
that they really instilled in me that work ethic and that perseverance. When people ask me like, why am I still doing this? I was like, cause I've never had a choice, but to not do what I do. I've been taught to work hard. <laughs> I've been taught to, you know, to do this work. So, you know, I have, to, I have to give that to my family. I'll say that my mentors, and I've had a few, but Lisa Quiroz, who was the former head of philanthropy and diversity and inclusion at Time Warner, before she passed, she really encouraged me to think about, she had spent an entire career working so hard and building a career and then building a life. And she encouraged me to really focus on building a life and then the career piece would come in hand, but not to forget to build a life. And I think that that's really important and something that I remember often. That's powerful. I'm sorry for your loss. I mean, she sounds amazing. She yeah. is. So, so I'll give you another quote. I'm a big fan of the work ethic and, and just the perseverance also. I, I keep a quote right in the front of my uh, computer that says successful people begin their days where others end in failure. So I'm looking at it right now. Mm. Uh, that's something, again, when you have those days or you just want to kind of throw in the towel, well, there's, other, there's always one more phone call you can make or you can send that last email. Yes. Or you can read that last document or whatever it is, just something so at least you feel some level of accomplishment. So yep. uh, I can't thank you enough, Daisy. I lo- I'm loving your energy. Great insights. You are, I know you're not taking the credit. I'm not saying you're the ultimate pioneer, but you are <laughs> a pioneer. You are a leader to a lot of people that look up to you. You're really making a difference. You're moving the needle and that's extremely inspiring. So thank you for uh, coming on today and sharing your story. Thank you so much. Thank you for inviting me. I really appreciate it and, and excited to continue the conversation at another point. That sounds like a plan. I'm going to hold you to that. (laughs) Recording. (laughs) Many thanks for listening to Who's Who in HR. If you're looking to connect with more top-level HR professionals, be sure to log on to networkwise.com to find out how you could be part of an HR mastermind group. Also, subscribe to our newsletter to stay up to date on everything happening with NetworkWise. In the interim, make it a great day and remember to always network wise.